0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 19th, 2022. What is it about murder and writers that inspire writers to write books? Um, around murders in a symbolic or literal way. Uh, Bob Dylan said, murder most foul. We had a wonderful show yesterday with the uh, former AP head in Mexico, Catherine Corcoran, who has an important new book out called In the Mouth of the Wolf. Uh, It's a book uh, trying to figure out a murder, the murder of a very brave Mexican journalist, Regina Martinez Perez. And in a way, Corcoran recreate all the injustices and problems of 20th and 21st century mexico through the book we've also done lots of books about murders in america which reflect the realities and unrealities of uh, of american life we did one uh, a few weeks ago with deborah holt larkin she has a new book out a lovely girl recreating the murder in 1950s suburban america in santa barbara Recreating the Surreal Nature of Southern California. And another one on, about a murder on the East Coast, a 1922 murder, a very famous one with Joe Pompeo, um, a book about uh, the recreation of race and class in uh, East Coast America, early 20th century America, called Blood and Ink, The Scandalous Jazz Age Double Murder, The Hooked America on True Crime. We're back up to the 21st century in this show with another murder. This one actually didn't take place in New Haven, but the story is built around New Haven, of course, the home of Yale University. The name of the book is The Other Side of Prospect, and the author is uh, Nicholas uh, Davidoff, and he's my guest. Uh, Many people will be familiar with Nick's uh, not Nick. I, I he, nobody knows him as Nick. Nikki or Nicholas. I'm gonna call you Nicholas, uh Nick, uh Nikki. Um <laughs> you've really confused me already. Um <laughs> congratulations on the book. Let's let's stop talking about your name. Um the other side of prospect is a murder story, a murder mystery, but like the other books I talked about, it's also a a, a broader. Um, opportunity to reflect on the nature of America.
1: Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that that's completely fair. I think that, you know, violence is often just the extreme expression of problems that many people are experiencing. And, you know, I think that in this case, the murder on a gloomy New Haven side street of a 70 year old man by a couple of teenagers, who um, are then neither of them is the person who is arrested for the murder, and neither of them is the person who goes to prison for it, is um, to me just an extreme lens into common problems that, of post-industrial communities. And it's it was, it became a way for me to talk about things I'd been thinking since my own, about since my own New Haven childhood. And, you know about neighborhoods and about yeah. So it's in two
0: thousand and six. Let's let's because not everyone will have a, the opportunity to read the book yet or, or the reviews. In two thousand and six, uh, an old man was
1: murdered on the streets of New Haven. Um, who
0: who was that man and what happened then?
1: That man was uh, a, a man named Herbert Fields, known as Pete. He had come with his family. At, New Haven, like many uh, East Coast cities, experienced every form of immigrant migra- every wave of immigrant migration, beginning, you know, in the mid 19th century. I mean, so we are talking about the migration of Irish and Italians and Eastern Europeans and so forth. And he was part of the first wave of what was called the Great Migration, uh, which is African Americans coming from the South to work in. Um, northern cities like New Haven and you know he had done that and he had done well and he had moved up and out of New Haven but he the neighborhood in New Haven close to the Winchester repeating arms factory is called Newhallville and he had grown up in Newhallville or spent part of his childhood in Newhallville after. Right.
0: Winchester. And uh, to, to show people on the map, Newhallville is a, a hop, skip and a, a, a jump from Yale university. It's neighboring, but of course, like so many of these neighborhoods neighboring on fancy universities, it's actually rather poor.
1: Right. Um, this is, a, I mean, I would say everything about this project, Took on New Haven as a place that was a representative uh, community that spoke to common American problems. So yeah, so Pete Fields moves up and out, but he misses the community where he grew up and likes it, and goes back and plays cards there and has a girlfriend after he becomes a widower there. And one day he has the ter- you know terrible misfortune to be waiting outside his girlfriend's house. Some kids run up on him. They ask him for his money. He doesn't want to give it to them and violence uh occurs
0: and then what i mean that's just the beginning of the story the book is not really about the man murdered it's more about the people accused of the murder is that right
1: right it's um a hasty police investigation ensues um the police become too certain that one 16 year old committed the murder over a sequence of uh interrogations they um, they elicit or coerce a false confession. He goes to prison for 38 years for this crime. And that's eventually when I met him, when he'd been in prison for this murder. He's a young person named you Bobby. You call him uh,
0: Bobby. You don't give it the last name. Is, is there a reason for that?
1: Um, I felt um, that it should be his decision uh, because if you read the book, you will see the many, many incredibly difficult things that he went through. And, you know, it was his choice to spend a lot of time talking with me. So then it, I, I feel as though, um, especially when you are dealing with issues as a writer related to street violence, um, the first thing that you want to do is to do no harm. And one way you can do no further harm is by if there are people who talk with you who just say, I'll talk with you, but you can't use my name, then you go that way. And if someone talks with you and he says, I'd prefer you just use my first name, If those are the conditions, then you know. Nicholas, um, was this man innocent? Bobby, yeah. Um, So when I met him, he'd been in prison for eight years, and I interviewed him many times in prison over the ensuing year, um, where I came to see him as such a wonderfully observant person, someone who had a very vivid and accurate grasp of the experience of childhood, what it felt like to grow up in the community where he'd grown up, what it, he's just a very observant person. So he, similarly, he was a very accurate and again, I thought illuminating observer of other people's existences. And so I spoke to him over the course of the next year. And then one day I received a phone call from his lawyer and it turned out that the state had been quietly reinvestigating his case and they were going to set him free. So I met up with a lawyer near the prison and I was able to watch someone be told that after nine years of being in prison for a murder he hadn't committed, that, uh, that the, the state had reconsidered and they were setting him free. And so then over the next yeah, year. The
0: really, the really, really tragic thing, Nicholas, about this is it, how unsurprising it is, how almost normal um, I mean, there must be so many stories. How did you find this story in the first place? So you began investigating this guy before he was set free. Is that right? Did you have a sense he was innocent?
1: Uh, well, I mean, where the story comes from, I guess, comes from two places. It comes from my New Haven childhood where I became, I could tell you at some length of how I became sort of aware of how structurally New Haven worked. Even as a kid, you could feel it. Um and that New Haven, as I grew older, I could see that it was not dissimilar from the strange juxtapositions that you've alluded to between great sources of prosperity and opportunity. And just right over there across the fence or the next street over, people were living radically different American lives. But when I, I thought about this for a long time across my life, beginning from the time when I was a kid. And because I played baseball all over the city, I knew every neighborhood and I could see it and I could feel it. And then I would come back to visit my mother uh, in New Haven after I'd grown up and moved away. And I would just see that there really were two New Havens, just as there were two Connecticut's, as there were two Americas. And it just seemed that the demarcations were becoming more drastic and, to me anyway, troubling. And I had written several books, but I didn't feel as though I had the experience yet where I felt that I was ready to take on something that was this... um, challenging on so many levels it seemed to me that it was going to involve history and and, in social science in addition to finding as you say a real story and because no book can work without a narrative of this kind and so I came back to New Haven and then I was sort of looking around and one day I received a call from a lawyer and that turned out to be Bobby's lawyer and as soon as I began talk he'd heard about what I was doing and as soon as I began talking with him and then meeting with Bobby I knew that this would be a way to write about the real char- main character of the book, which is the neighborhood.
0: Is this book you, you've suggested, um, it's different from your other works. Many people will be familiar with your, your wonderful book, The Catcher Was a Spy, also made a tremendous movie. Um, you've also, you wrote a book, Collision, Low Crosses, about your life for a year in the NFL. You've written about your grandfather. You've written some anthologies of sports. Is this a different kind of book, Nicholas? Um, a more ambitious book? I mean, not that the other books weren't ambitious, but a, a, a broader, as you say, a, uh, a, an investigation of America itself looking into its soul.
1: I think every writer you talk with probably will tell you that each book has its own challenges and you don't quite know how challenging they'll be until you take them on. I just had the sense that this would be more challenging uh, Because it was going to take on so many different themes. I mean, it would have been easy to just to create a easier to just write a true crime story, just if I'd written stuck to an account of the particular crime. But I didn't, in a sense, want this book to be crime forward. I wanted this book to be an explanation of how place matters in America and where how you grow up what and where where and how you grew up what the consequences are And if that's a sort of a thematic undertaking, you really have to, there must be significant ballast for it that doesn't feel like ballast, right? You want everything in one way or another to be braided into a story and that's really, really challenging. And so that's what took me a long time to feel ready to do that I knew that in addition to everything else, it would take many different forms of inquiry, but also that it was gonna require a sophistication in creating a narrative I just wanted to be sure I was ready for. So that was challenging. But then, you know, I remember when I was writing about my book about my grandfather, um, that, that, the fly too, yeah, the fly swatter, I just remember, you know, how to structure that book was really, it's one of the joys and also the real challenges of writing nonfiction that your structure in some way should take the short, the shape of your characters or shape should, should, should to you anyway, feel like your story. And that is a very, very, until you figure it out, frustrating and then you know exultant feeling ultimately. But I just remember with the flyswatter that I got to the end, and I just knew that the structure was completely wrong. So I spent an entire week, I remember just tearing the entire structure apart and then slowly rebuilding it. And with this, it took me three. So the way I created the structure for this book was I took a series of index cards and I, there were about maybe 60 to 80 index cards. And on every index card was a theme, something that I was going to be writing about in some way in the book, and I didn't know where it should go. Um, Because it should have kind of a linear chronology, but then everything in the chronology is really built of themes. And I moved those 60, they're like boxcars on a railroad train. And you know, when you look at a railroad train, you don't know why the blue one and then the green one and then the yellow one and then another the blue one. The order feels completely arbitrary. And I just moved all those boxcars around until it might have looked completely arbitrary, but that was the structure. And that was one of the more challenging things to do. It took a long time and, and, and a lot of thinking, but you know. So it's a sort of like a, a pointillist peak piece of art. Um, I'm guessing
0: that incarceration was one of the, the major themes. We've done a number of show, many, many shows. You can't commentate on America and on books about America without talking about jail. One with Michael Walker, for example, who found himself in jail uh, indefinite doing time in jail, an investigation of time in jail. Another with Keda Haynes, who went to jail and her journey from prison to politics, Bending the Arc. Then lots of shows with Activists like Jonathan Rapping, anti-incarceration activists, uh, Gideon's Promise. Is the issue of incarceration and the injustice of the American justice system, and of course it's racism, Nicholas, is that perhaps if there is a central
1: theme in, in your book, The Other Side of Prospect, is that it? I would say that's an important theme. And I would say that mass incarceration is certainly a consequence of what, to me anyway, is the biggest theme, which is is neighborhood isolation and the consequences of neighborhood inequity. Um, But the neighborhood that I am writing about is right now the most incarcerated neighborhood in the state of Connecticut. That's New Hopeville. That's right. And um, at the time that I was writing, there were only three streets in the neighborhood where a formerly incarcerated person wasn't living on them. So there is a kind of very intense relationship between the community and prison. And so I wrote about that, but I also wrote about what the experience was, the intimate experience of a young person who was in prison for a crime he didn't commit, what it was like to move to this, in effect, new kind of neighborhood, which prison was, and what his experiences were like there. So there are two chapters, yes, about Prison generally, and his experience there in particular.
0: Um, well, I, I've been to New Haven a few times, and of course we always go through it on, on your on the train on the way from Boston to New York. Uh, perhaps with the University of Chicago, there's no more vivid contrast between the university, its exclusivity, its wealth, its privilege, and the neighborhoods around it. Uh, the, the same is true of University of Chicago. It's less true of Harvard, where you were an undergraduate. Certainly, maybe true of Berkeley and one or two other places. Stanford, I guess, in East Palo Alto. Uh, what is it about New Hill, New Hallville that resonated so much. It was founded by a man called George Newhall. What's the story of Newhall that's so sort of symbolic about the decline and
1: crisis of America, Nicholas? Sure. I, I I want to say first, though, that I'm, I agree with you about Chicago and so many other places, whether we're talking about Baltimore with Johns Hopkins or yeah, I guess so. Trinity and Hartford or St. Louis yeah. or USC in Los Angeles or uh, Duke University in Durham, and you could go right yeah, on down yeah, the line. Yeah, I agree. You're right. And so for me, it isn't, it's, it's worth thinking about in terms of the juxtaposition between these wonderful institutions of higher living, learning, and people who, neighborhoods in where people feel that they have very little opportunity. I think that's one thing to think about, but I just think that that's a way that is a representative way, again, to think about what the country's like now um as for what the country was like from george newhall that when the neighborhood is named as you say for george newhall who was a carriage baron um new haven at one time was sometimes compared with later you know retro retrospectively to detroit as the leading city for building carriages and so george newhall built his a series of houses for workers, and that became the Ville or Newhallville. Uh, And then eventually the the main sort of industrial institution in the community was the Winchester Repeating Arms Factory, which supplied many, many jobs um, over many generations. And we can think of Newhallville to some degree as an iconic American neighborhood just because so many waves of immigrants came there. And each wave of immigrant came through, found a first house in and around Newhallville, had jobs that were let's not romanticize them they were often hard they was hot they were tedious they were not necessarily extremely well paid but they were sufficiently well paid that they gave people opportunity right for uplift and social mobility so generation after generation that's what new hallville was and in its way it gave people who didn't have a skill a trade or much education a means for all of those things if not for themselves then ultimately for their families. And that's when we talk about the murder of Pete Fields, that's exactly who Pete Fields was. He was someone who came from South Carolina and he moved up and out in his, and he provided uh, better opportunities for his own children. Um, but what happens is, is that in post-industrial America, there, as, as, as you can see all across the country, there are these neighborhoods which were created because of work. And then the problem becomes what happens when there is no work. And the, for sure, in some places, There are are some opportunities for a very limited kind of employment, but that limited kind of employment can't compare with what those Winchester factory jobs provided people, which was sufficient income that people had a house, a car, and a sense of a future for their kids. And because there's been no post-industrial solution that provides well-paying jobs of that sort, then you have these very isolated neighborhoods even if they aren't far away from other communities and cities they're still very isolated and they're full of incredible frustration because as you can imagine there are people still there who remember the way it was when the neighborhoods were safe neighborhoods that existed because of work and now what it's like for young children who don't feel as though they have that much to look forward to and the way i just said that sounds almost a little bit sentimental or something it isn't sentimental at all. When I talk to lots and lots of young kids who are involved in what they call the violence, in gun violence, the chief thing is is that people feel that there's nothing else for them, that there's a sense of hopelessness, an incredible frustration, a feeling of being put down by society, there's no place for them. And I'm generalizing because every person's an individual and all people feel about these things differently. But in the book, it isn't generalized. It talks about the specific experiences of Various people, particularly the person who likely killed Pete Fields, and this—if you want to think about gun violence—we talk about it really in two ways. You talk about what is the response when something happens, but also what are the deeper responses that have led to something happening. And um, you know, like everything else, that's a big American problem. It's complex, and I don't mean to simplify it, but that's the relationship between, in in a very brief way, between neighborhood and gun violence.
0: I want to come back to the issue of violence it's part of your subtitle uh, but I want to also talk just very briefly about the role and responsibility of universities uh, mentioned the proximity of um, of Yale University to New Haven New uh, Newhallville um, you mentioned Trinity College uh, and another leading university we did a show last year with a man called uh, Devarian Baldwin. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. He's a scholar then. He's written an interesting book about, a, a critical book about the way in which universities have essentially colonized neighborhoods and their lack of accountability and responsibility. I mean, obviously, universities can't start opening factories or providing huge amounts of employment. But do you think that places like Yale have more responsibility, should be more accountable for the neighborhoods around their exclusive campuses?
1: Look, I mean, nobody thinks better of great American universities than I do. I mean, they are sources of incredible, you know, research and knowledge and um, they stand as exemplars of, of some of the highest, the highest goals and aspirations that we can have as, as a people. And they, I mean, you have only to look at the many different forms of research that Yale, scientists provided during covid for example just to look at the wonderful effect they can have but the fact remains that universities are incre- uh, university elite universities are very prosperous places and they were created as places that were supposed to have a public you know serve some sort of public function provide public service and for the most part now they educate the world right and yet they exist where they exist and they don't pay taxes in those places and generally speaking they don't have institutionally, that close a relationship to the places that they come from. And to me, on just some moral level, it feels wrong that the neighborhood in your very backyard where people are, ki- large percentage of kids are hungry. There's, a, I mean, when you talk about a lot of violence, it doesn't mean that many people are being killed for there to be a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence. And with these real problems going on and that have been going on generationally, it just seems that a university at minimum should be providing all the intellectual forces that it has to try and think about how to do better. I'm not saying that universities can go out and solve the problem that they can create enough jobs to save a neighborhood, but they can think about it and they can think about it in some sort of way that attends to what I've been talking about in terms of a post-industrial solution. And that's what I wish there were more of. Also, they could think a little bit about how their presence might influence their neighbors instead of, as has sadly been a history of too many elite universities in the United States, walling themselves off to the rest of their communities. That creates a kind of a dis, an American disparity that, I mean, you know, on some level, when I talk to people in that community, the, not everybody thinks they should be going to Yale. I didn't think I should be going to Yale as a kid, but I did feel that I wanted to be proud of the big local institution instead of put down by it. And you would be astonished by how many people, I mean, I interviewed over 500 people when I was writing this book, and I can't tell you how many people talked about how they felt put down by the, the university. You can't feel put down on your own, so to speak. And I feel that, you know, that you know, universities can do better. They don't have to do everything. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: That. At the weekend, I interviewed an undergraduate at Yale who's got involved in some huge fight about critical race theory. There's a feudal quality to America, and the world of Yale and the world of uh, the neighborhoods around New uh, Newhallville are, 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 are entirely separate on every level. You mentioned that you grew up in um, in uh, in New Haven, and you didn't go to Yale, but you did go to Harvard, which wasn't exactly uh, uh, a downgrade. Um, and, and your childhood is also quite complicated. You, you've written about your father's troubles and your, in some ways, troubled upbringing. How personal a story is this? I mean, obviously it's about a different world, another side of the world, but I'm, I'm guessing uh, you moved back as well to, to New Haven, having lived around the world. Um, there must be a a personal quality to this book Nicholas.
1: Unavoidably I mean what you say is true I grew up in New Haven I had a single mother she you know she was a school teacher they didn't pay school teachers that well when at that time and especially not if you were working part-time because you had to take care of your young kids my father was in and out of institutions he didn't work he Sometimes wandered the streets. It was a, a very tragic person. He lived in another state. And I, in you know, my mother slept on a fold out in the next room, and I could um, hear her, you know, worrying about making the rent and um, how she was going to make it through the month when I was a kid. And so the way I got to know my city, New Haven, was that I played a lot of baseball as a child. Kids typically would, you know, you it's just normal just to be in your neighborhood and to know your neighborhood. But I knew many neighborhoods because I went everywhere as as I ascended through these various baseball leagues. And it was on a baseball field in Newhallville um, that I remember very clearly. And I was in my early teens and I was standing out there at my position. And around the, you know, you knew all of your teammates and your opponents and you also knew the people who came to games. And even though as kids, we didn't talk about such things, I had just the strong sense that compared to a lot of the people who I was playing with and against, I, had, I was a, you know, I, my childhood was really, really good. And I, I was provided for, I had the sense of my future, and I was playing with kids who, you know, their circumstances were a lot more straightened than mine. And I felt, you know, I, I, could, re- I could tell. And I'm standing out there at my position on this dusty field and I'm looking out beyond the, the fences. You didn't the play catcher,
0: field. did you? What was your position?
1: Uh, I typically played, you know, shortstop or second base or pitcher, sometimes third base. And I'm standing, I, I, I was out in the infield though that day. So it was second base or shortstop. And I just remember looking out beyond the fence and seeing how close noticing just how close Yale was that it was right over there which again, for any towny kid in New Haven, which I really was, you know, um, it's paradise. And it, and it just seems so close. And I just noticed that juxtaposition for the first time. And I just remembered the locution is very clear in my mind from when I was a kid, it was very formal. I just kept thinking how, how can this be why should this be and you know you didn't talk about it but I guess as I through my life as I'd come back to visit my mother I would just see that things were doing better at Yale the things were becoming more affluent and prosperous the endowment was going way up and the neighborhood surrounding it things weren't getting better and I just again I would always think why should there be two New Havens two Connecticut's two Americas in this incredibly divided you know sort of Disjointed way. And it just bothered me. And eventually, I guess I came back to New Haven because I wanted to know w- why this was when you're a kid, really, how it feels and what the consequences are, because I thought that ultimately so many of the consequences have to do with feeling and what does it mean when you don't feel like you have opportunity or as though you have opportunity and opportunity is right over there for somebody else. And I thought, is this just my construction? Have I just conceived this? Are people really not paying? But of course, once I started talking to children in the neighborhood, that's exactly what they're thinking about. And so in, in in writing about what I wrote about, it's only a more extreme reaction to a general feelings and um, you know, so, yes, obviously, for me, I felt very strongly something from my childhood that was troubling me across life that I now felt experienced enough and ready to write about.
0: Uh, let's end with a, some, some of your thoughts on violence and injustice. Those two words which are in the subtitle of the book, A Story of Violence, Injustice and the American City. How do we address violence and injustice. You talked about perhaps universities doing a little better jobs, but certainly universities can't fix the violence
1: and injustice of America. What can, Nicholas? Well, I would say that certainly there are people people at Yale who I spoke with quite a lot in the course of my research, who were thinking a lot about violence, two in particular, Tracy Mears and Andrew Papachristas. We had many conversations and they were were people who who study violence. To me, violence is an inherently deeply, deeply complicated um, topic. And indeed in this book, the word complication, I I think I would say it so often because I felt that everything is more complicated than it seems. And the story really begins with the, 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 the danger of simplifying. And so if whether you're a police officer or whether you're... We haven't even talked about the criminal justice system or the police
0: who, of course, were responsible for the great injustice of locking up this innocent man.
1: Right. Well, let's talk very quickly about violence. I guess violence, I would divide it into response to violence, which is typically police, and policing can be better because if police better understand their communities and they better understand the sources of violence and they really know people. The problem in this particular case was that they didn't know this kid. And so, and they didn't really take much of an effort to know him or to what really happened. They were hasty and they were intemperate in how they solved the case. And I feel as though that, that is a deeper sort of typical problem of a community like this, that people aren't known in their full complication as individuals, so that that is one of the many things that policing can do better. But police can't respond on their own. Police only know what people tell them. And if a community isn't helping respond and doesn't see violence as a community problem, there's only so much police can do. And that's why solve rates in so many cities are so low. It's not that the police aren't trying their hardest, is that they're not getting enough help. That's Those are just two elements of a very complicated subject of violence and response. But then another another way to think about violence is in terms of root causes as the most extreme expression of frustration and anger and many other feelings which people tend to deal with in other ways. You know, you can think of violence like as you would maybe grizzly bears or white shark attacks or something. It takes a very, very little incidence for people to feel it very acutely. So it doesn't take much Many actual acts of violence in a neighborhood for a neighborhood to feel violence and to be, uh, for people to become overcome by fear. And I can't tell you how many kids who talked often about how they spend their lives thinking about threats. And some of them get guns so that they will feel protected to defend themselves some of them get guns and might even get involved in the violence because it's the the only source of sovereignty as one kid said or power that they feel that they have there are many 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 different things we could say about violence it's complicated it's a big phenomenon and so when i talk about things that universities can do it's not just that universities can you know, give some of the vast amounts of money that they now have in their endowments, what they can do is they can pay attention to huge, important problems like this, and they can think more deeply about, you know, root causes and how to overcome them and so forth.
0: Yeah, and it's they're educating the next generation of leaders. It's not unrealistic that the next president of America may be a Yale person, Ron DeSantis. Of course, Yale has perhaps the top law school in the country trying to figure this stuff out in theory. You've mentioned, um, Nicholas, the word complex several times. This is a nonfiction book. Do you think with incredibly complicated subjects, like the one you're addressing in this book, it's easier to deal with as a novelist versus a nonfiction writer?
1: Well, I don't think I ever think of of writing good books and easy... (laughs) (laughs) um and well I I, I didn't didn't suggest that that. my my point is simply that
0: in a way you're you're not constrained by the facts but they they force you to make story incredibly
1: complex whereas a novelist can simplify it I guess I, I I guess that's true but I think that of some of the you know when I think of um when I think of you know, the way Charles Dickens, for example, wrote about the criminal justice system and all the many Mm, other things he was writing about in his novels. Or I think about somebody like Claude Brown's Man Child in the Promised Land. I think these are just, I mean, it is, no matter what you're writing, it is, it, if you do it really well, it will feel difficult to you and it will and it, it will yield complexity that doesn't feel complex to read about. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You want a reader to be able to read something that feels smooth and that you're just being carried f- carried through in an arresting flow, but that it shouldn't feel like vegetables as people. Yeah. Say. Well,
0: well who, who writes well about America? Uh, you mentioned Dickens on 19th century England. Who writes well about 21st century America, Nicholas? Uh, uh, either oh.
1: in, in non-fictional or fictional terms, 21st century America. I, I, I mean, in, in you addition know, to yourself,
0: of course, and and your wonderful new book, uh, "The Other Side of Prospect," which addresses all the important issues in a in a really interesting, complicated story.
1: Well, thank you. I think that you know, I, you know, I guess just off the top of my head, some books that I've really admired in recent years are, I think, about Adrian Nicole LeBlanc's "Random Family." I think about, um, uh, I mean, when you talk about how young people grow up, there's a book called *Heavy* by Kia Se Layman, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. I think uh, Jill Leovy—I hope I'm pronouncing every—I just know their 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 names from their book jackets. But Jill Leovy wrote a book called *Ghetto Side*, which is about policing. Which I don't know anybody who thinks about policing who doesn't think that that's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, You know, uh, you can learn a lot from poetry and Reginald Dwayne Betts's poems about prison are spectacularly insightful in how we think about that experience. Um, You know, Emily Bazelon writes about prosecutors in Mm. a way that I think few people do. There are many, many very good writers who are thinking about these things in specific and more generally in important ways. Um, I myself just felt as though I, what would be most challenging for me was to take on many subjects in the way that sometimes, I mean, somebody who was reviewing the book called it old fashioned in a positive way. And I was really complimented because some of the examples that I had in mind were big Victorian novels. That yeah. took on many, many 19th century themes. novels. Big Victorian novels that took on many, many social themes and integrated them into the flow of an irresistible story. And I think among my models and another one, I would definitely, inc- I mean, the two books that influenced me the most were definitely *Manchild in the Promised Land and James Baldwin's nonfiction. I think James Baldwin was the great nonfiction writer of the 20th century. But I also thought a lot about Charles Dickens because Charles Dickens did exactly what you said. He took many, many urgent social themes that were on his mind that weren't necessarily connected and saw connection between them. And then in a bracing, brilliant, just utterly moving narrative way, found a way for you to think about them when you weren't even intending to think about them because the story was so good. I think about Bleak House and I think about Great Expectations and I think about David Copperfield and I think about Our Mutual Friend and so many other books in this way. But they're, one of the beautiful things about literature is there's so many different ways to approach this. Nobody ever thought better about the experience of other people and how to think about other people than Virginia Woolf. And could there be two different, more different writers than Charles Dickens and Virginia Woolf? So. Eh. Uh-